Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, where we believe that feeling great and living a long time is possible and that your healthcare should help you get there. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Wenzel. My hope is simple, that this show will help you along your journey to becoming the healthiest, strongest, and most powerful version of you possible. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, before we jump in this week's show, I just want to give you a quick overview. Um, it's a little bit long of an episode. We get a little bit technical, um, but we do a deep dive in uh, enlarged prostates, um, erectile dysfunction, and prostate cancer for men. I really f- think that you're going to find this both insightful, uh, enlightening, and um, actionable, which is what we always like to do, um, where we have a clear idea of what we're looking for, why we're looking for it, and should we find something, what to do next. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. I'm super excited to jump into this topic, both because it's a dear friend of mine, uh, and it is also a topic that I'm um, incredibly passionate about, and that is um, men's health. Um, This is a urologic update uh, for 2020 uh, with Dr. Ben Daner. Dr. Daner is a, a, a close friend of mine. He uh, trained at the uh, University of Cincinnati for medical school and also did his residency at the University of Cincinnati. He is the chief of urology at St. Thomas West here in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also the chair of robotics. He's been in Nashville for 10 years practicing. He is an avid runner, not like me. Uh, <laughs> he loves to cook, and with all of his spare time, he likes to spend it with his three children. Dr. Ben Daner, thank you. Thank you for having me, man. I'm really excited to do this. Yeah, I am too. We've been trying to put this together, but as a busy surgeon, it is awful <laughs> challenging, and it's it's very gracious of you to give us your time. Oh, sure. There are a lot of men who, uh, as I say, suffer in silence. Uh, there are a lot of men who it's hard for them, especially a lot of the men that I deal with, your typical alpha type male. Right. They have very few voices that they allow into their life that are influential. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly when it comes to navigating their greatest asset, which is their health, um, they're very protective on the voices that they give the time uh, to listen to. So this, sure. is, this is a super valuable episode that I have really been excited about. Um, today we're going to talk about kind of, it's certainly not encompassing of all men's health, but it's kind of, as I see it from a practitioner standpoint, it's the three most common topics that I end up having with men. And that is, um, BPH, which is a big prostate, um, uh, erectile dysfunction and prostate Mm -hmm. cancer. And we'll kind of systematically walk through these three top three topics with a guy who this is all you do. Right. Um, day in, day out. mm -hmm. And so any, latest recommendations, things on the forefront, things that are happening in your world, this is a great opportunity for me to learn um, from a real pro. So we'll jump right into um, uh, BPH. First of all, for for those that maybe have heard the term but don't know what it is, let's define it, and then we can talk about what are the primary risk factors for a man having it. When would you kind of start thinking that you might be at risk for it? The unfortunate thing for most people is that BPH is something that just happens with age. I mean, it's one of these things that about 60% of 60-year-olds have, 80% of 80-year-olds have. Over time, 
you are going to be more prone to having something like this develop. Most people, it's related to your genetics, which is going to be something that we talk about a lot here, especially things like cancer and things, mm-hmm. um, but also just kind of age and time. And for most guys, it's one of these things to kind of get swept under the rug, kind of what you were alluding to earlier, where we don't talk about it, but people start making kind of sly jokes on the side. Right. Like your kids are like, Hey, we can't get through dinner or a movie without dad getting up to pee. Well, that's not just something you have to deal with. That is age. And that's your mm-hmm. prostate getting bigger. And it turns into things like trouble peeing and dribbling and hesitancy. And the biggest one that most guys started coming around to is the getting up at night. Cause when you start getting up two, three, four times, then you're starting to have daytime lethargy and tiredness. It's really disruptive. It's really disruptive. Especially for high-functioning, very active men. Yeah. I mean, they really feel it. You think of guys that are, you know, very young alpha males like you were talking about that are in meetings every day, and they're the guy that's kind of pacing at the clock waiting to get Mm -hmm. out of it. I mean, that's really disruptive. Mm -hmm. Or if you're the guy leading the meeting and you kind of have to make a bolt for it at the very end, it it kind of shows up. You know, I I love that you bring up age because I, as a a jack-of-all-trades, as a family medicine-trained guy, and an expert in none. As I dig into, <laughs> as I dig into these fields where expertise really lives, it's stunning to me how I don't know that it's unrecognized. Because when you talk with the academic folks, it's clearly brought up. But for some reason, there's a disconnect between uh, age, basically time in residence, like the long, like the bit, like one of my favorite pop quiz questions for a young physician is like, well, what's the greatest risk factor for heart disease? It's age. Mm -hmm. The the longer you're on the planet earth, that in and of itself is, is a huge risk factor, but yet I don't think we talk a lot about it. Mm -hmm. It comes up in the answer on the test and you always select it. Right. But somehow there's a disconnect into the management, the active conversation about it. And so if you live long enough, you're probably going to have some BPH as a male. Right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's the wheels coming off the bus a little bit. The, it, no one likes that answer, yeah. but it's the answer is that what do you mean? I can't you're just getting older. Yeah. yeah. And it's, in, I mean, you brought up, you know, ED and stuff like that, and we're going to come to that. But a lot of the interesting things that happened with ED were the ads and stuff that we saw, you know, 20 years ago when Viagra came around this kind of not talked about idea that men have trouble with erections and have trouble with sex, but Hey, now we have a a pill for it Mm -hmm. brought that out into the forefront Mm -hmm. and things with medicine did the same thing for BPH where you had drugs like Flomax to name one that was was on every baseball commercial, every ad, Mm -hmm. every guy knew about it. And that I think changed some of the mentality from like my parents' generation where you had these, you know, or even the world war two generation above my parents where they didn't talk about any of this. Mm-hmm. You just suffered in silence. or Maybe in the locker room at the country club. Or right, at, at, yeah. You know, it's like, hey. Some guy mm-hmm. knew some guy who had something at mm-hmm. one point. But it's changing. And mm-hmm. I think that's bringing some of that out there. And I think it's the alpha kind of male mentality where you don't want some of this, but at least now we're living in an age where you have... There's something to do about it. Right. And people are very willing to talk about it. And if you don't want to talk about it, you can Google it in Mm -hmm. 30 seconds and get an answer about what's probably going on. And these are your next options for it. What is the best practice when you think about the diagnosis of BPH? So 
BPH itself is really just symptoms. symptoms. It's, it's something that happens with age. And, you know, as you're a, a family physician or if you're a, an internal medicine doctor, it's one of these things where people are going to come in and they're going to say, I'm having trouble dribbling, leaking, all these. That's the first thing that they're going to say. And so usually that involves like a prostate exam. And we're talking about PSA as part of this because sometimes cancer shows up in some of this as mm-hmm. well. But for most of it, it's just kind of your symptomatology and kind of so difficulty what's initiating going on. a stream, slowness, hesitancy, getting up at night, mm-hmm. and it's really those risk factors. There's a survey called an IPSS, which is oh. just something you can do online. It's like five, six questions about That's your a free father. Thing? It's free. We'll link to that in the it's, show notes. Yeah, and I have it through our website as well. And okay. you just link through it, and it tells you your score and your symptom score is a number that yeah. can be used objectively mm-hmm. to say you are mild, moderate, Got severe. It. That's wonderful. What about treatment options um, for BPH on on the mild end to the severe end? What what are guys looking at? Yes, I do have it. What would they be looking at? Yeah. I mean, so the mild end of things, I mean, so you came to me at 40 and said, look, hey, I'm getting up at night once or twice, or I'm having trouble Mm -hmm. during the day and I get up in the morning and I go six times before noon. Well, then the first things are, what are you drinking? What are you doing? I mean, we'll get some guys who come in and they're drinking a pot of coffee before lunch (laughs) and they're going to the bathroom every 30 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Get rid of that because you're 40, 42, 45, and we can avoid medicine and all these other things that come with it. It's when you start getting down the pathway of, okay, we've done that. We stopped drinking before bed. We don't drink a lot of alcohol before bed because that's going to wake uh-huh. you up. All these diuretics. All these diuretics and the, the way alcohol affects your sleep. Of course. Um, and so we start talking about things like that. And if that's not working, that's where then you start going down the pathway, which usually for a lot of guys involves something like a medicine. And mm-hmm. Flomax was one. It's called Tamsulosin as a generic mm-hmm. now. And, you know, that's a good starting point. The interesting things now, man, is that what used to be you had you change your lifestyle, try a medicine, or you had what's called like a TERP, which is right. like a rotor rootering out of the prostate. There's these other procedures that have come up over the last seven, eight years. Hmm. There's one called Eurolift. There's one called Resume. These are less invasive techniques that have really good publication data. And I think what happened to a lot of guys, say, 10, 15 years ago, was that you got put on a med and that was it. Like you just kind of stayed on a med forever, ever, ever. And if you had side effects from the med, you just had to deal with it unless you wanted a big surgery. Interesting. Now, the TERP is a big surgery. It's a big surgery. It comes with risks that are bleeding, and you get a catheter, and you have risks of erectile dysfunction and trouble with ejaculation and all these things that can come with it, mm. which are probably permanent afterwards. And the medicines don't come without their own risks. Sure. They cause ED. They cause orthostatic dizziness mm-hmm. when you stand up. Some guys tell me they feel fatigued. Some guys yes. tell me they feel bad mm-hmm. or they have muscle aches. Now, granted, it's not every guy because there's far more people on these meds than not. Um, But there's these other things that are coming into play. So what I'm finding, at least in my practice, and and we're a center of excellence for Eurolift, so we've done more Eurolift in this area than anybody, is that there's a lot of guys who go on meds. They're doing okay with meds. And probably 10 years ago, they would have just stuck Stuck on the meds. But realistically, you can do better, get off of the meds and go on to one of these other things. And that's what we're seeing. And even the more interesting thing for me now is that just recently there is an article that came out in a European study that's talking about maybe there's a correlation between alpha blockers, which are meds like Flomax, and there's a big category of drugs, 
and long-term dementia. And really? so it's not a one-to-one. It's not a causative. It was one of these large studies where they saw that as men got older, obviously there's more of a risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. As men get older, there's more BPH. So a lot of men are on these medicines. Sure. It may not be causative, but certainly... You know, as much as we see people suffer with dementia, if there's any sort of relationship as a young guy, this may be a reason not to be on something for the next Well, and we're seeing dementia years. rates skyrocket. Exactly. And nobody has a real good explanation. So right. there's all these correlative things that although they're not causative, they certainly need to be dug into and we need to be paying attention. And this is I, – I had no idea. And yeah, this is new stuff that's coming and down. And we'll link to that. We'll find that study and we'll link that yeah. to that. That is a – fascinating. What is, what would you say uh, a couple of the biggest myths or um, misconceptions around BPH are? Well, I think, so the obvious one is what I was saying is that it's something that you just have to deal with right. it and that you're stuck with this forever, ever. Um, a lot of people come in and they think it's something more dietary that caused it. Or mm-hmm. if I just stop doing this, it's going to get mm-hmm. better. And we, we talked about as before, like the thing like caffeine and alcohol mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, there is a little bit of relationship apparently to prostate growth with things like red meat and hormones and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about testosterone mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but for most people, it's, it's just what it is. It's age. Yep. And you just kind of have to figure out what you want to deal with and what you don't. I have one patient and he's a lawyer. He's a very smart, intelligent guy. He says he gets up 15 times a night. Oh my word. I've tried him on medicine. We've talked about other things. He's happy. And yeah. I'm not going to make him any happier than he is. I couldn't live like that myself, but that's who he is. Any risks with this, like this particular patient? Like, let's just say he represents a subset of men who just say, meh. Yeah. You know, uh, outside of the symptom and the effect of the quality of life, are there long-term consequences yeah, for so, untreated, yeah. like letting it run rampant? Yeah, if you let it run rampant. So a lot of times, like if you came to me, and this is probably something that's more what, like a urologist would do, mm-hmm. and you're saying, hey, I'm getting up, I'm having all these things. We'll do things like a bladder scan, which is where we're seeing how much you're actually keeping in your belly with a little bedside ultrasound. doesn't hurt. But what we start seeing is as you start having this growth of the prostate, you start retaining urine in your bladder, which is what makes you go more often. But then your body, your bladder is starting to fight and trying to push that urine out. And if you think of it like you're going to the gym and you're doing you know, chin-ups and stuff like that, you're getting these bigger muscles. And that sounds really good, but your bladder just wants to be like a little thin yeah. water balloon. It wants to fill and contract. That's all it wants to do. As it gets thicker and more muscular, that elasticity goes away. Then the bladder starts to degrade and you'll start getting guys who later in life, they don't pee at all. And it's not because their prostate's big. And if you do a surgery, it's going to get better. Now they don't pee because their prostate's got like a grapefruit rind on it and it can't contract. And now you're stuck with catheters. That's the long, big bad. Now that's not the kind of thing that at 40, you have to worry typically at 45, it's going to happen to you. But this is all the more reason where guys, you know, take it a little more seriously than just ignoring it. And then if to the future you start something and the medicine's only kind of helping you, Maybe this is the kind of position where you start looking into some other things. Well, I'll tell you, uh, this is an opinion of one man myself, (laughs) but I can't think of very many things that would be more encouraging to make changes than the idea of living with a catheter. Yeah, absolutely. And I I have a a number of men who have had to, for one reason or another, have short-term – I mean, thank God for them, but they're like – 
if that thing never goes in me again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> like it, right. it, it, that, and men are kind of, at least the men I deal with, they, they can seem very mysterious and complex, but they're actually quite simple. Like mm-hmm. I, if you can find something that is a motivator, they will make some changes. Yeah. And even in my ER work, it's like, look, man, I need a urine. All I need is about 10 drops, or I'm going to put this in magically urine appears. It, it's, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is, uh, it is a great motivator. The faucet opens up mm-hmm. really well. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's move to erectile dysfunction. I actually love your insight into both ED and BPH with the advent of the pharmacology and the marketing dollars for awareness. Now, all of a sudden it's, well, yeah, actually I have been dealing with that. And now because there is something to do about it and it, I'm not being made to feel less of a man because I don't work, that there's actually some plumbing or electrical problem. Um, what is the, uh, what are the risk factors as you would see them as the, I know there's a lot of them, Mm -hmm. But the ones that guys should be most concerned about making sure that they're not doing to give them the best chance to not suffer from ED, what are, the, what are those risk factors? Well, so, so ED is a consequence. If you think of it like a pump in your car and everything like that, mm-hmm. it's an inflow-outflow circumstance. The reason guys get an erection is that you have more blood flowing in the penis than starts flowing out. And think about what's going on in the patients that we see and pretty much every physician is seeing is that we're seeing an increase in, you know, obesity, we're seeing an increase in diabetes an increase in heart disease. The reason being the diameter of the artery to the penis is about a millimeter diameter to your heart's around seven millimeters or so your neck's about a centimeter. So when you have a heart attack, you've blocked off a seven millimeter vessel. When you get a stroke, you've blocked off a 10 millimeter vessel. Mm Same thing's going on inside the blood flow to the penis, except it's only one millimeter. So the same plaque buildup, the same diabetic effect that eventually can cause you to have a heart attack, we're seeing the same thing there. And ED is very, very commonly one of the first symptoms Mm -hmm. of men having these same issues that in a harbinger down the road, and there are studies that show... ED presenting in a young guy with no other symptoms is a precursor Mm -hmm. for a heart event or a heart attack within the next five to 10 years. So it's a very good ability to identify someone who may have a bigger health risk. Mm -hmm. So if we see a guy coming to me, especially a guy who has no PCP, and they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm having ED, can you just get me some medicine and get me through the weekend? We're saying to them, well, look, you've got bigger issues. So you Mm -hmm. need to start looking at what are you eating? Mm -hmm. You know, what's your diet? Like, are you doing cardiovascular exercise? Are you doing 30 minutes of walking at the very least three times a week? Are you smoking? Can we get you to stop smoking? These are the things that are the first checkpoints on that Mm -hmm. list. Yeah. So I actually, that is, and I think that will make a great graphic that I'll create and put into the show notes as well. Visually, I think that's a very powerful, I'm a very visual graphical guy. Yeah. And as you walk through the diameter uh, differences between those three examples, I think it paints a really dramatic picture of why you would see early signs of heart disease showing up in erectile. The, the connection yeah. isn't obvious till you realize that the pathophysiology is very similar, if not the same, yeah, of it's an identical. artery becoming occluded. Yeah. And so all of those phenomena that take place to develop a plaque, the plaque enlarging, becoming unstable, rupturing, it's happening in a much smaller 
space, mm-hmm. so you see symptoms way early. Right. Um, I actually love that visual. Um, and they're not devastating symptoms. So right. it's not like you're like, oh, you know, Jim had a heart attack. And you can pass oh it God. off for an, a number of things. Right. Oh, well, maybe I wasn't able to achieve a quality erection for any number of 12 reasons. Right. That I, could come I had up too with much to drink tonight. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm tired or, right. you know, uh, yeah. stress. Yeah. Um, and you pass it off. It could get really passed off for a long time. It does. As opposed to crushing chest pain with sweating and nausea. And, right. You know, that that's a little more difficult to ignore. Right. Um, and I think a lot of this, you know, going back to the idea what we talked about before, it was swept aside mm-hmm. and it was passed off for all of these things where mm-hmm. it just happens with age. And then you had the advent of something like Viagra where it just, hey, it's a side effect of this drug that we're making for pulmonary issues. Lo and behold, helps erections. And now we've got a you know multi-billion dollar you know product. But it brought the marketing of that because they had to make a way to get the drug known. Into the forefront, and then you had you know Bob Dole walking around talking about <laughs> it. But it brought it into everyone's you know kitchen and you know family room and everything. And it wasn't just the locker rooms in the back of the club where people were having some of these discussions. What are the? Is this similar to BPH in the diagnosis of ED? Is it symptomatic diagnosis? Yeah. So a lot of it's probably more symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And again, it depends on the guy. I mean, if you have a guy who's had his prostate removed for prostate cancer, of course. the the incident is probably not that he's having necessarily heart disease unless he had Correct. something before. He had a major event. We found this. Now it's moved on. But as like a young guy coming in, it's usually something we start talking about, okay, well, is it all the time? Is it new? Mm-hmm. What's going on with this? Is it something psychological? Because we'll see that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of young guys are very much into what they have seen online and stuff like that. And, and so they have this, um, psychology where they need to have this erection that lasts for two hours yeah. and they got to perform and all these things. Yeah. And then that becomes a psychological mm-hmm. issue. That guy doesn't need meds. He needs to have actually some counseling about yeah. what's real in yeah. life and what's not a younger guy coming in who's saying, look, I'm, I'm starting to notice some of these things. Uh, I'm 45. Mm-hmm. I may be getting heart disease. I may have been put on a blood pressure medicine. Mm-hmm. There's your answer. Mm-hmm. Usually it's the symptoms that come into it. As a young guy, I'll usually check some hormones as well, like testosterone mm-hmm. and some of that to see mm-hmm. if it's playing into this. Testosterone itself doesn't cause ED, but it certainly can affect your libido, uh-huh. which can affect your erections and everything that comes That's with it. That's the way it. I describe it too. Yeah. It kind of drives in. the want to. Yeah. Um, but the the plumbing and electrical, is, is it's really... You know, it's 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 a it's it's usually a plumbing problem. Yeah. If you've been post surgical, there's probably mm-hmm. some electrical. There's the nerves that you have to navigate with the prostate surgeries and yeah. all, all of that stuff. I I think the fact that you you come out and say what you've said, I mean, it's perfectly in line with my with my thesis in the way I describe it as a non specialist. But I think of these things like at the physiology level it's the same things happening we mm-hmm. need, we need to make sure that we this isn't an early marker for bigger worse things yeah. um and i was just um hearing i didn't cross reference this the study but it was something like uh in the next 10 years something like 70% of US adults are going to be diabetic or something mm-hmm. based on the trajectory. And it sounds a little ridiculous until you actually dig into what the, I know the numbers are, which are 25% of US adults are diagnosed diabetic. Another 25% are p- thought to be 
either undiagnosed diabetes or like severe metabolic syndrome mm-hmm. right there. Right there. Uh, and then another 25% are mapping metabolic syndrome. So only one in four people as an adult in this country aren't diabetic or pre-diabetic or mapping diabetes. That's mm-hmm. stunning to me. Yeah, it's huge. When you think about diabetes and its contribution to cardiovascular disease, I mean, next to smoking and age, it's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Like, don't smoke. And we can't control your age, but just don't smoke and don't get diabetes. Like yeah. that, that one-two punch is like – and so as a young man, if you're starting to have blood flow problems that are manifesting in qual- you know, poor quality erections, this is a big marker. It's a huge thing. Yeah. And especially as a young guy, I mean, if you think of it – you know, we'll see people in their 30s, I mean, coming in with this. Mm. And it's not a psychological thing. It's a – I've got high blood pressure. Yeah. My my doctor said I'm Lipids pre-diabetic. Blood yeah. pressure's through the roof. And you're going to spend the next 50 years of your life with this and you're not worried about it? Like, this is a big thing. And sometimes it's, you know, the carrot and the horse for some mm-hmm. of these guys. I've had guys come in who's like A1Cs or 8 and 9 when we check them. And, wow. And they'll, they'll use it as, well, if I get this down, this may improve. And it may not. It may need some assistance. But... It, you know, you tell them, look, a guy who's a diabetic, this is going to get worse. Certainly it's going to get worse. And mm-hmm. it, in a diabetic, especially, it does not respond as well to meds. Mm-hmm. It does not respond as well to some of these other options that guys have. So you're faced with not only that you may have a disease, like erectile dysfunction, that is going to limit your quality of life, um, on top of the fact that you have diabetes and everything else that's going to bring you. But also even the meds I have and the, the options I have to help you with it aren't going to work mm-hmm. as well. It's a huge thing to take on. And I think for a lot of guys, that's a way of trying to get them motivated in a way of saying, well, like, we're going to get your A1C down a point. That doesn't mean as much some, to some guys as, well, hey, now I can actually have sex with my wife again. Correct. Another big motivator. <laughs> Catheters and quality of – That's right. Uh, a man's sex life are tend to be pretty significant motivators. Um, so outside of the obvious, let's take the man who we're clearly thinking they're a good candidate for the Viagra Cialis of the world. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts or comments on advantages of one versus the other? It's a common question I get. Well, what do I start with? I, yeah. I, I tend to answer it on, well, what's the rhythm and cadence of your normal frequency? If you're a, if you're a once in a very long, but it's predictable and planned, then maybe Viagra it's short acting. It's in and out. It's probably ideal. If mm-hmm. if you have a very unpredictable rhythm, but you have more frequency, you might want a 24 hour where you know. I hate to quote the commercial, but when the time is right, kind of thing. Yeah. Like you're there's less in the stress. Bathtub. Yeah, separate bathtub. The separate o- bathtub overlooking a sunset. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, do you have any thoughts about the difference between the big players? Yeah. Well, I mean, so for a, a long time, it was very easy because there were samples and stuff like that. And you could give someone a Viagra sample mm-hmm. and a Cialis sample or a Levitra sample mm-hmm. or a Sendra sample. And whatever of these worked better for them, that's tended to be what they were on. Um, but when Viagra went generic and Cialis has gone, they've stopped producing samples. So for a lot of guys, it's to what your question was. I mean, if it's going to be like one of these, like it's once a month, once a week, you know, whatever it is. And it's always this kind of plan. It's very predictable. It's very predictable. Then a Viagra is great. Um, Viagra tends to be more affected by what's in your stomach. So we always tell people, look, if it's going to be like your Saturday night event, like a romantic evening, your romantic evening, don't go and get the big 
you know, steak dinner and the cheesecake because it, it affects uh-huh. the absorption. And we'll get guys who will, that doesn't work. So then we switch them over to Cialis or they just time it up differently. Well, yep. maybe they take it in the morning and mm-hmm. that's when they do that. Um, the Cialis lasts longer and there's a low dose, which is like a five milligram. Mm-hmm. And some guys like that. I got a couple guys who are very, very frequent. And so they kind of use like a little mini a dose. Yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. take the edge off. And there is some effect on BPH. So if you get a guy who, oh, really? I have some ED, I got some BPH. I want to try just one medicine that kind of does both. They do that. Um, cost for these has been a huge issue, mm-hmm. especially there was a time where Whatever I think your one pill, yeah, you just took it. Um, I think at one point people were telling me that if you went to like Walgreens or something, uh, one pill of Cialis was like 40 or 50 bucks. <laughs> and you know, you can't, that's, that's not, you have affordable. a motivated group here, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, a lot. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as things like sildenafil, which is the generic of Viagra, right. come around, I think that some guys are steering toward the generic as a first trial point. Yeah. If you really look at the data, I mean, and I'm talking data outside of like the different pharmaceutical makers, sure. I think they all kind of work very similarly. Okay. And it just depends upon your metabolism or your side effects. Viagra has a lot more um, nasal congestion mm-hmm. and headache and visual mm-hmm. changes. Like some guys actually will see like blue for a while. But as to your point, it's only like a four to six hour medicine, so it's out. Yeah. Cialis um, or Tadalafil, which is the generic, it works about 24 to 36 hours. Its biggest risk is back pain. So if you have a guy who already has chronic back pain and he takes hmm. a Cialis and he's saying his back's killing him, that's the Cialis because it's interacting with an artery in your, your nerve and your spine. So you kind of tailor it in that direction. Either of them pose a bigger risk with cardiac patients? Well, I think with any cardiac, especially you if there's any question, careful. they need to be really careful. And for a lot of guys, we'll simply ask, has your cardiologist approved you to take mm-hmm. these meds? Mm-hmm. Is it okay? Yeah. If you're on a nitroglycerin, Correct. you can't take this. Yeah. You know, It'll plummet your blood pressure com- completely off. Yeah, I see that in the ER. Yeah, I'm you sure know, you do. It doesn't, it doesn't always get fleshed out. Right. But, uh, it'll only happen to somebody once. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be sure, <laughs> They'll be to, be let sure to let somebody know. know. Uh, yeah. I take Viagra. Don't give me that nitro. Yeah, please, please, please. Because uh, I end up staying in the hospital for three days because of what happens to the <laughs> nitro. Um, so for the guys who um, – they're great candidates, but it's not working, and they still aren't – they're still underperforming with yeah. their erection. Where is the next step to – give me your thoughts the way you think about – somebody comes back, that's eh, better, but it's still terrible. Right. Where do you go after so let's, let's say it's like a younger guy, they're healthy. Let's say we've checked their testosterone and everything's mm-hmm. fine. Then you start looking at, again, psychologically, is everything okay? Yep. Are we good here? And then if all of that is striking out, if it's just like it's just not working, mm-hmm. that's when you start looking into things like shots and pumps and things like when that. When you say shots, you're talking about like the pee shot? Yeah. So there's there are shots. There's one called Trimix, which is a mixture of three different medications that's injected by the patient or his partner or whoever into the mm-hmm. penis. And it's basically, if you think it back to the, the artery analogy, mm-hmm. you're taking a pill. It dissolves in your stomach. It's not getting down through this blockage. So you're right. just basically wasting mm-hmm. medication. 
you need to get beyond that at the and, site. At the site, so mm-hmm. that's where these injections come into play, where okay. you're putting medicine directly in the penis. So it dilates these. It dilates trimix, which is again a mixture. Mm-hmm. Also has some components to it that help trap the blood in the penis. Gotcha. So it's an inflow issue. In some guys, it's an outflow issue. Uh-huh. In that, uh-huh. if you're having too much come out, that's where there's medicines in these things and help keep it there. That's where you get into things like rings as well and yeah. stuff. Which where are, guys will say, "I get aggression, but I can never." Last right, time. right. Or I never form a good erection. And that's where we say to some guys, hey, mm-hmm. look, if it's working for you or if the Viagra is helping you get the erection, but it's going away, you could simply just get on Google and Amazon and buy a ring yeah. and slide it over once you have an erection. Yeah. And then it's going to help you maintain. Yeah. It's cheap. And it doesn't hurt. You yeah. know, you're fine. And there's no medication. There's no medication. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're great. And those are the kind of nuances to kind of what's there. Um, I think there's a mental hurdle for a lot of, of guys to do the shots and stuff like that. But it's some people, especially diabetics, who fail Viagra, mm-hmm. fail Cialis with a much greater rate and with greater severity. You know, the shots come into play to that. And then there's things coming down the pipe. There's things like stents and stuff like that, just like they stent a heart to try to open up the blood vessels. Oh, really? They're looking at that for erectile dysfunction. Um, I don't think it's very commonplace right now. Yeah. I think there's hope for it to the future. Um, and there's certain, you know, programs that are out there kind of researching this. Um, but for the vast majority of the population right now, yet. it's not there yet. Is there imaging that you would do? Like, like a, like a arteriogram or yeah, a you can like you, you can just... do things like a penile duplex and uh-huh. things like that, which will help you diagnose. Like, oh, there's an arterial problem. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a venous problem, which is the outflow? Because those uh-huh. are the guys you say, look, well, you know, you're not going to get better from Viagra. Yeah, use a pump, use a ring. You know, yeah. consider other things. There are surgeries. Those are the kind of the last line where mm-hmm. we place. Pumps and, pumps and balloons into the penis to actually that's like just end of the road, right? Yeah, because I mean, once you go that route, you're never going back recover. the other way. But I've got plenty of patients we've put those in, and those are people who have had severe trouble with erections, mm-hmm. whether it's from a diabetic, whether it's somebody who's had you know like a, a prostate removal mm-hmm. and they're just not getting any yeah. recovery. It gives them their quality of, of life course. back. If you look at the evidence on those, it's something like ninety ninety two percent of both the patient and the partner find satisfaction from the pumps, whereas yeah. before they weren't. But I think that's a drastic step from a yeah. guy who's 30 coming in yeah. and going back to now we've got to work on your heart disease and everything mm-hmm. to you know that level. What about where, where does the topic of – because I have a lot of guys asking me about PRP and stem cells. Mm-hmm. And I it, – it's, it's a fascinating topic. It really uh, is. Um, and I don't want to poo-poo it, but I, I also do, I don't know. Where, where is your, your group? Yeah. So, I mean, from, from my group's perspective, we're not doing PRP. We're not doing stem cells or anything. Um, I think that science behind it isn't as good as the hope behind it right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of hope for stem cells, just like for a lot of these things. Um, but we're not actively involved in it right now. I don't think the evidence supports mm-hmm. the cost of it. It's awful expensive. And Exactly. And I think it's a lot to put on to someone, at least in my practice, to mm-hmm. say you're going to spend all of this money for something that I don't even know if I truly believe in myself. Yeah. Yeah, it feels um, – it's still in the pioneering phase for me a little bit. Right. Um, not to say – we won't get a breakthrough at some point where I'm convinced we're in an early adoption type phase where it's like, it's time to jump on this. This is clearly like, um, especially if there's more, it's more than just symptomatic. There's Mm -hmm. actually some healing properties where, you know, potentially 
you know, but I was just curious because I get a lot of questions about, sure. do you do the PRP and do you do stem cells? Uh, I know that there are a lot of orthos and, and there seem to be some, it's, and it's always interesting for me whenever there's a topic that is very, very controversial mm-hmm. where it's binary, where you have people who are like all in and mm-hmm. people who are anti, it always makes me very curious as to why why yeah. are people so emotional on one end of the spectrum or not? And typically there's a lot of politics and economics mm-hmm. when you d- get under the surface. Um, the implications of a joint injection replacing surgery are pretty profound economically. Oh, it's huge. Uh, so it would make sense to me that big systems, if they were onto it, would want to push that aside and discourage that sure. idea. Um, but there, I, I've been hearing about um, as an athlete, as a younger man, I was hearing about, if I'm not mistaken, it was the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks, the baseball team in, in Phoenix. There was an ortho injecting knees of their athletes, hmm. like pre-med school. Oh, really? Yeah, this was super fringe. Yeah, like right at the very beginning of yeah, anything. And these athletes were swearing by it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... It's a fascinating topic. It's one to stay tuned for sure. Yeah. But, but uh, it, I'm always curious what the folks in the uro- urologic colleges are saying, what the data are saying, and, and is there any promising studies or thoughts or some thought leaders in the space? But So you're saying it's it's promising, it's interesting, but we're just not there yet to say yay or nay. I would say that's probably a good example of it. Okay. I mean, realistically. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of the stuff that we do in medicine, especially the way things are moving down, like CRISPR technology and stem cells and kind of gene harvesting and everything. There, there are going to be breakthroughs in this. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be a huge game change, not just for ED, obviously, not just for oh, ortho things. You know, cancer, everything you like that. You splice out your, your pancreatic cancer genome yeah just cut it out and replace it with filler like i mean it's crazy it's gone well i mean did you see so there was an article in npr over christmas last week where they were talking about that at um at centennial hospital in downtown nashville was like the first crispr gene edited patient was done they did a, a sickle cell patient Oh, so wow. they've replaced her even, genes. I got like goosebumps. Yeah, I know. I, and I, I, from what I read, I'm, again, this is NPR, so it's not a medical journal that sure. I read, but it sounds like she's doing exceptionally well. And they, they are monitoring this, but it's been done now. I mean, we're down that you know, Jurassic Park kind we're of, there. we're going to start doing these things. I mean, we have supercomputers. We have your genetic code is just base pairs that are all yeah. predictable. Mm-hmm. And it's just reading code. Yeah, and and so the infrastructure appears to be there. Yeah, for computer learning and understanding what the, the computers are seeing and, and recognizing, and the pre- precision of being able to. Sl- it, uh, George Jetson. Yeah, it's upon us. It's not yeah. like it's it's reality. Yeah. Um. So that'll be interesting to kind of pay attention to. Okay, moving on to uh. Okay, the last question is uh, biggest myths, um, or misconceptions around ED. I think we kind of touched on some of these. Um. Any famous last words on ED for myths or anything? I think the myth of it, again, much like the BPH thing, is just that you don't have to live like yep. this. I mean, I, I really believe it. And I think for a lot of younger guys, they're jumping on to other things. They're jumping on to things that they find on the Internet because it's it's easier. And I, I think the biggest misconception is that it's something to be embarrassed about right. or hide it. Right. And, and frankly, I'd rather my son come to me with something that he was having a problem with this in the future than him finding out something online and buying a product. 
um, I did a study when I was in residency where we were we bought some things online and then we did a mass spec on it. So basically, we broke oh, it down wow. to its chemical constituents to figure out what was really in this stuff. And most of it was like ground up Viagra and you know some like rat poison and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's the same thing that happened here with vaping, where they're finding yep. you know other products. Don't be embarrassed about it. Just go talk to your physician. We're all guys, and mm-hmm. even the women that are in in the the practices and everything like that, they see this all the time. You're mm-hmm. you're no different about any of this than anybody else. I think that's sound sound advice. Now the big monster, the prostate cancer yeah. discussion. Um, it is you know up there with heart attack, stroke, dementia, kind of prostate cancers. Well, cancer, and then of the cancers that they're most concerned about prostate cancer is high on as it should be as it should be. Yeah. Um, what are the biggest risk factors as you see it as a really a prostate cancer specialist? I mean, this is surgically, this is a lot of what you do surgically. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, um, so going back, you know, PSA is a screening test that Mm -hmm. we do for prostate cancer Mm -hmm. and PSA took a big hit about 10 years ago where there was a lot of discussion about, should we be doing PSA? And family practitioners, medicine docs, you guys were at the forefront of kind of mm-hmm. the first line of this. And if you look at the evidence, PSA decreased um, the death rate by 30% when it was uh, it created back in the 90s. So we know that with PSA screening, as your primary method so far, you can decrease the death rate from this disease. Mm-hmm. Much like BPH it's a disease of age. Mm -hmm. It's the same trend that as you get older, unfortunately, you're going to be more and more at risk for prostate cancer. A lot of the evidence shows that it's something more genetic. So like if your father has it, your risk goes up. If your brother had it, if like your great uncle Ned had it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't affect you. It's first degree relatives. It's first degree relatives. Um, There's some evidence about diet, much like the BPH, Mm -hmm. the hormones, the testosterone, um, red meat, that sort of things. Things that have a high fat content Mm -hmm. can contribute to it. And it's Mm -hmm. probably because of how your body converts those hormones into testosterone within the prostate Mm -hmm. and it affects the cancer itself. Um, There's really no evidence that smoking is part of this. You know, Mm -hmm. surprisingly, of all the bad things that smoking does and all the other cancers I see that smoking is part of, not as much with prostate cancer. It's, I think it's almost like a, a moving target. Like it's just, you may be genetically prone to it and you may get something bad, but also it's a slow growing disease mm-hmm. for the vast majority of what's there. So it can be picked up at a very early stage. I think at one point back when we started really working on prostate cancer, um, you were finding cancer at a late stage. So surgery, radiation, with very much at the forefront. I think as we start to have more genetic analysis of prostate cancer, testing to really get down to what's the aggressiveness of your disease that's in mm-hmm. your body, not mm-hmm. the guy that's in the other room, I think that affects some of us how this has played out. So I've had more and more patients over the last 10 years do things like active surveillance where they're watching the disease, not mm-hmm. ignoring it, but mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. watching it. And that way they're avoiding some of the potential complications that you get. And at the same time, if if we see that there's a concern or the genetic test shows that there's an issue, then we can steer down a path that makes sense. So, so many things I want to uh, 
genetic testing is that the genetics of the actual tumor right so from the so, biopsy you do genetics on that yes so you, and back in going into things like genetics i mean it's a a, a de jure right now i okay. mean this is one of the biggest growth areas in in medical right now which is where we're finding we have genes we know this gene is potentially a problem and we've developed a test to find out if your cancer has this gene or not now whether you can really do anything about it after that that's still the next step. But there are tests that can be performed if you come in and we do a biopsy on your prostate or if you undergo like a removal of your prostate surgically, there's genetic testing that can be done on that that shows you, for example, what your five-year metastasis rate is, which is where the cancer mm. spreads, what your five-year survival, your 10-year survival is. Mm -hmm. And I think as a younger guy, you know, if God forsaken that I was diagnosed with prostate cancer before jumping into something that could be a, a kind of a gray zone decision, it helps make it a little bit more black and white. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't available to you. You had to make a decision based upon mm -hmm. what you were told. Yeah. The, um, so again, age mm -hmm. is a big, I heard it said one time and I thought it was crafty at minimum and brilliant at best that you either die from it or with it. Uh, when it comes yeah. to prostate cancer, that if you live long enough as a guy, you're going to have it. Yeah, there was something I read one time that said, like, if you get to be 100, it's 100% yeah, of you. 80% 80-year-olds and 100. Like, yeah. yeah. So, and I think to your point, and I think there's value in realizing that this is, and it's very similar to breast cancer in women if you live long enough. It's a time in residence. I mean, if for whatever reason, the prostate tissue over time just has a, an incredible ability to become cancerous. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be that there are people with certain genetic predispositions that may be flared by a heavy red meat diet or, yeah. you know, it's so complex mm -hmm. um, that it may accelerate it earlier right. or accelerate the rate of growth earlier. And that seems to be, would you think, would you say that the, that the outlying cancers, the ones that show up early and are more aggressive, that probably is more genetic disposition? I, I'd say there's definitely a factor that mm -hmm. plays into it. I think some of what you're seeing um, right now is things like testosterone usage and mm -hmm. stuff. So there's a huge um, push right now for guys that have been detected to have low testosterone to start some sort of supplementation. Mm -hmm. And that's good because mm -hmm. if you look at going back to the diabetic question and the meta the metabolic syndrome question, low testosterone can actually be very devastating to you over time. 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real avenue where testosterone plays in with this. But at the same time, um, it was used to be a high thought that testosterone caused prostate cancer, black and white. You have testosterone. Now you get prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. End of story. The evidence really now seems to be that it's not going to cause it, but in certain patients and certain people, it can accelerate its growth a little. An active and, disease. It can accelerate. An active disease mm -hmm. that was already there, maybe Correct. hiding out. Yep. Maybe it was going to be the kind of thing that you found out at 80 you had. Mm -hmm. But now you've kind of fed it a little bit and it starts to make itself known. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where the detection comes in through rectal exams and PSAs and everything else. But there is some evidence that maybe there is some contribution in certain people to having testosterone on board. Yeah, I've, I've come across studies that show um, pretty strong evidence that baseline testosterone at time of diagnosis really correlates well with the Gleason score. Mm -hmm. Like 
the higher the baseline testosterone, actually the lower the Gleason score and, and inversely. So if you diagnose with prostate cancer and your T is in the tank, mm-hmm. it's likely going to be a much more aggressive tumor, which is kind of not intuitive. Yeah. Especially based on when you and I came through training where it was kind of the tail end of this like, oh God, testosterone causes it. Yeah. Of course. You're going to die. I'm yeah. sitting here thinking – well, if testosterone causes prostate cancer, then we better get all the guys who have lots of testosterone in the doctor quickly. Wait, those are 18-year-olds who never get prostate <laughs> right. cancer. That doesn't make sense to who me. Who are very happy in life, by the way. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and <laughs> tend to be lean and energetic and passionate and yeah. and got t- stamina. I see prostate cancer in guys who are old-er mm-hmm. um, starting to really deteriorate physically. The infrastructure, musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal system is atrophying. I also see metabolically these metabolic diseases, insulin resistance, suboptimal thyroid, and these things starting to tank. Then there was always a disconnect. And I remember when I started really digging into this, I was thinking, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure that testosterone is the the bad guy here. Right. Um, Absolutely. I don't think it's debatable at this point if you have an active disease. And you've taught me this. There may be a small subset of people that the benefits outweigh the risk, mm-hmm. even despite their active disease. But that would be something that a urologist who yeah. really understands the full context of the risk profile for the general population, it's a conjuring indication. Like yeah. if you got active prostate cancer, you're not. You're, this is not your best move. But at least you should have a conversation I think about so, it. Yeah. Especially, well, we'll have guys who come to us whose testosterone is in the tank, you know, say under 50, which is nothing. Like, yeah. And they feel awful. awful. And they have prostate cancer. But they may have a low kind of stage grade where they don't want to jump into radiation. They don't want to jump into surgery. But they feel so awful that life isn't worth living yeah. as it is. They're and those are the depressed. guys. Yeah. And you say, well, look, we can we can help this. And these are the risks. We're going to assume we're a little gonna, bit of a risk here. Yeah. But we're also doing it intentionally to try to improve your quality of life. Right. And we're going to keep watching. Which will therefore help your weight. Yes. your heart, all these things, not, which will buy you more life to the future, yes. at which point we may have to deal with your cancer. But for right now, we're going to make things better for you. It, there, was, there was a study uh, maybe three, four years ago, and it's an in vitro study. So it was just done in a lab, like in little dishes and stuff mm-hmm. like that, not inside a person. Um, and I think it was out of Switzerland or Sweden. But, but what it showed was that actually by putting testosterone into prostate cancer cells in a dish in a petri situation actually inhibited prostate cancer growth. Whoa. Now, it's a it's a very small study, sure, and it's not in, not a, person, in a person. And it's not even in a mouse, but the idea is interesting. Yeah. I mean, that they showed that what you just described could an eighteen year old, twenty five year old prostate bathed in testosterone be protective? Yeah, uh, I, I know that I've now. These are very pro testosterone people that I. I'm, I'm reading about, but their position is quite frankly that testosterone is protective, mm-hmm. and 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 although not a perfectly done study, that is suggestive. Yeah, um, that at least we should be thinking about what risk men are taking on in the realm of developing prostate cancer in an environment with pro- especially profound low testosterone. Oh yeah. You know, absolutely. Is like, how are you even standing? Yeah, I know. I mean, that is, I mean, most women have three, four times that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, okay. So we've established age is probably the single greatest mm-hmm. factor. And then next to that, probably genetics, probably genetics or and, absolutely genetics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think at this point it's pretty determined. Yeah. 
and specifically first degree relatives. First so degree that's relative. Brother, sister, dad. Well, not sister, but oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the brother, uh, dad. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, bro- bro- brothers and fathers. Yeah. Is it a like a falling slope that like dad didn't, but grandpa did, or like? Yeah, so it used to be that there was like a falling slope where like your uncle, not as much as your dad, but, but still, still some. Than- and really, the more recent stuff, it's really just that first degree. Unless dad had it or a bro- older brother has it, mm. you probably don't have the genetic. Your genetic doesn't jump through the roof with Got it. it. And then you start getting into things like nationality, like African-Americans have a greater risk, it seems. Hmm. And so screening should be done at an earlier age. Mm-hmm. Um and there's certain like smaller populations that have a little bit less risk for whatever reason. So there's something that kind of goes on in some of these kind of differences. Let's talk really quickly. I know we're kind of going a little long, but this is such a rich topic. No, and yeah, I appreciate your time. Sure, man. Um, the beginning of okay, I want to make sure I don't have prostate cancer. Which right. I think every guy in the back of their mind is like, I would really like to verify that. Right. I'd like to trust, but I'd like to verify. Right. Is a PSA screening the test? Um, in 2019, 2020, yes. in my opinion. And Today for, forward. Yeah, yes. Not historically. For right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so for the American Urologic Association, mm-hmm. they give guidelines just like, you know, the American Medical Association sure. has their own guidelines. And everything you look up may say differently. But usually what we tell people is if your dad had it, you know, especially at a young age, mm-hmm. you want to be about five years before that. So if your dad was 40, then you need to be 35, although that's a very rare, rare occurrence. But if your dad was 50, you should be looking at around 45 to start doing things like a rectal exam once a year, mm-hmm. maybe a PSA once a year, understanding that there are good and bads to testing just like anything else. Mm-hmm. And then if the PSA shows a, a, a concern... There are supplemental tests that you can do with it. For example, there's one called a free and total PSA, mm-hmm. which looks at a couple different nuances of the PSA enzyme in your blood. And it kind of gives out a calculation about if you did a biopsy in you, what your risk of cancer might be on that biopsy. And if it's something significant, then yeah, it may mm-hmm. be something to do. Um but for most guys, I'd say around age 50 is a good starting point mm-hmm. unless you have a high concern. And frankly, I think with a lot of this, if you're 40, 45, and you're really worried about this, I think for just the peace of mind, maybe checking When you're collecting data points yeah, and, and finding out what your trend is. Exactly. I've seen cancers with a prostate PSA of three, and I've seen no cancer with a PSA of nine. Like yeah. It, it, it tends to be, on one hand, a useful tool for me. On the other hand, it drives... It's an anxiety provoker. Well, one of the more interesting questions I get is we'll do PSA checks on people and the number comes back at, let's say, four or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the concern on my end is to say, well, I think that's fine for now. I don't think we need to do anything about it. But the next question from the patient or his wife or his partner is, well, how do we get the number to go down? And and my response is the number is just a marker. It's a data point that we're going to follow. We don't need to treat the number, but mm-hmm. the, the number becomes all-encompassing, that that's what mm-hmm. they're so worried about. And they want to focus on fixing the number, not just checking and following to make sure we're fine to the future. Yeah, we, we have found a lot of value in, um, especially for PSAs as they get above three and move through four with percent freeze, mm-hmm. really helping us it's understand. A huge thing understanding that all PSAs of four are not created equal. Right. And, and that's one as a non-expert, but a guy who's really focused on this topic, I have found that a 
tracking along with a percent free also really helps us flesh out, you know, could this be a little prostatitis? Could just right. be you just have a baseline, you just you just produce a lot of it and it's nothing to do with cancer. Yeah. Um the PS the percent free tends to be pretty reassuring or provokes me to do more things. Right. Um and that can go down the path of things sure. like a biopsy, MRIs of the prostate, mm-hmm. you know, those sorts of things. But I think it's a good it's very low risk. It's just a little bit more blood, mm-hmm. you know, to add to the equation. What's the difference between a PSA and an ultra-sensitive PSA? And when would you use one versus the other? The ultra-sensitive is kind of looking at how low the number goes and just how exact that precise so number like a, is. So like a, a like prostate le- cancer patient that you've done treatment, you really right. want to drill this number So, down. for example, like the number can report out at 0.1 or less than 0.1. But a lot of labs won't go less than 0.1. They'll just do that little Correct. you know. Less than sign. If you really are trying to hammer it out, that's where you start getting the ultra sensitive that'll show it. It's zero point zero two, yeah, know, something like that. And for especially for a prostate cancer patient, that may be you know, especially as you move in for the next decade, yeah. a much more accurate because it's way not a screening following. tool at this point. No, now it's I a, wouldn't it's, do it's an a, ultra sensitive, at least in my practice, for a patient who's just following just a PSAs. The right, yeah. right, right. This is somebody where we've already treated it and we are hunting to make sure nothing is moving. Yeah, that there's at all. not a movement here whatsoever. Correct. Okay. No, that that that's the way I think about mm-hmm. it, but I, I get a lot of questions about guys saying, Well, why don't we get the I heard there's a better one. Yeah. And I'm like, well, there's always a better one. Especially because it was such a big thing from the task force ten years ago about saying, Well, we are overdoing PSA tests, it's mm. causing more harm than good, and it got big headlines on yep. CNN and everything. And it was really based on two studies that came out at the same time that were releasing information early. And when they came back and looked at the studies, they found a lot of confounding variables. They found that one of the studies actually released prematurely. And then when they came back, the numbers looked better. And if you looked at it, it was a big screening test. And what they found was the same number needed to treat to pick up breast cancer and to prevent a death in breast cancer was the same thing that they were finding with PSA and prostate cancer. Mm. But honestly, I think the, the, the the support for prostate cancer wasn't in place like the way it is for breast mm-hmm. cancer. Mm. And because a lot of guys, especially even 10 years ago, it's a big disease, but you don't really have prostate cancer marches and stuff. You don't see it on right. the street as much. And so a lot of it just got kind of swept away. And in realistically, it is a concerning disease that needs to be thought of. This is, I, and I, I've actually probably at one point in time put all these thoughts together, but since I have like notes and we're thinking about this, (laughs) it is interesting how much of the masculine experience and the reality of it has been that we just historically have not paid that much attention to, or men haven't paid that much attention to their health. Like whatever the variables are that have created women tend to be hunters of health and men Mm -hmm. tend to be like, "Ma, I don't have any symptoms. I don't pursue it. And how much further along we are in the breast cancer and the support and the like versus prostate cancer. Right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just the cancer, it's the ED, it's the, and it's the BPH. Um, it, it is neat at, in a talk like this to, to really be so focused to see trends mm-hmm. and patterns that I, I normally wouldn't see. Let's talk quickly about, so we've found prostate cancer. We've touched on one option would be, hey, based on your risk profile, your age, the way this 
tumor looks, the genetics. We're going to take a watchful waiting mm-hmm. and see what kind of slope this thing takes. Sure. And we might just leave you alone and it'll never be a problem. It'll be there, but you'll die with it and yeah. it won't cause you any problems. The treatment aren't worth it, yeah. but we'll keep an eye on it. That's, yeah. that's option. We'll watch one. it and see what yeah. happens. So for guys where that's not an option, yeah. w- w- how should guys without getting super, super technical, just on a macro level, be thinking about watchful waiting is not an option. Mm-hmm. What is the conversation you are going to have with those men as they're thinking about their disease? I think some of that starts falling into, you know, again, this is all patient specific sure. because what you have, the guy in the next room has something different. I think it's a big point. Yeah. And as a younger guy, I think that plays into it versus, you know, if you're 89, 90 and we picked up something, um, chances are we're just going to let that be. Yeah. But if you're 45, 50, you know, that's you a bigger question. Aggressive. Then you start getting on the pathway of, okay, what is the amount of the disease? So was it just picked up in one little spot on one part of a biopsy? Did it get picked up in multiple spots? What's your Gleason, which is a mm-hmm. way the pathologist looks at it and assigns a number like a six or a seven or something mm-hmm. like a nine or a 10, mm-hmm. which is very severe. Um, and then you start getting into things kind of what is your personal preference? Kind of what are the um, evidence there? It's there for these higher grade specific types of cancers that tend to respond better to things like removing the prostate, which is the surgery, mm-hmm. as opposed to things like radiation or proton or cyber knife, which are kinds of radiation that are directed at you from a camera. Or you get into things like what's called brachytherapy, which is where there are little pellets of seeds of radiation that are put in the prostate. And then you get into some of the little bit more, I'm not going to say fringe because there is evidence to support it, but you get into things like cryotherapy, which is freezing of the prostate. I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah. Or HIFU, which is an ultrasound that zaps the prostate. And Mm. these are kind of newer ways of trying to focus energy at the prostate without removing it or killing Mm -hmm. it or having the radiation effect. So I think a lot of it plays into patient-specific quantity of disease the pattern, which is the Gleason, how aggressive it is. Um, And then a lot of it's patient preference. Once you march someone down the path of, okay, these are the kind of data points that support what your options here are, I wouldn't choose X, Y, or Z because it's more risky for your specific type of Mm -hmm. disease. Are you willing to accept the risks of things like incontinence? Are you willing to accept the risk of impotency and things that come with these things? And then where do you want to go next? But because it's such a huge disease and it's so Mm -hmm. common, these are conversations that you'd be surprised the number of patients we see on a daily basis we have. Oh, I, I, I can only imagine. And I, I think that just treatment modalities alone, you and I could probably get super technical and nerdy and, (laughs) and spend, 90 minutes just on the, the surgical options. Right. Or the, and how it's done. Yeah. And do and you like, square the nerves and how is, is it done? For? And yeah. Like, and so, but I think for the purposes of this episode and just an overview, I, what I'm hearing you say is it, there are a lot of options. Mm-hmm. It really depends. And, these are conversations that you have to have with your urologist yeah. about what are we dealing with the disease? What is the likely trajectory if doing nothing? Mm-hmm. What are my ambitions and goals? What are the side effects that I'm most scared of or most unconcerned about? Yeah. And how do I navigate 
my ambitions with the fact that I don't want to die from this disease with what's available. Right. And I, I think that for some, for many, it's probably going to be surgery. Right. I would imagine. Cause I think the data is most supportive of better outcomes. So long as you can risk, risk tolerate some of the, the, the short term, the long-term data seems to be better on surgical. Yeah. Especially uh, with the, I, I think it used to be that, for a lot of us, when you came and you got told you had prostate cancer, it's especially as a male, your gut reaction is get it out. Like yes. I'm done with this. Yeah. It, it's it's a pushing it away scenario, and I think it's it's coming full circle now where we're saying to a guy who says that to me, well, I say, well, we may not need to do that quite yet. We can watch this, but I understand your mentality, and um, I, I do get some patients who I'll say, look, this is a slow disease. It does come with these risks. And they will still say, Doc, I want it out. And yeah. fine, we'll, we'll yeah. take it out. We'll get this done. Mm-hmm. We'll cure you. We'll walk you down the rest of this pathway together and, and make things better. Just like there you. might be a guy that says uh, the opposite, where yeah. the, the, you're saying, uh, we ought to take it out. Say, I want to wait and see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess that's what we do. But I right. mean, we, there's, um, there's consequences, pro and con, for both acting mm-hmm. and not acting. And for waiting. And I, I think that these are living, breathing conversations that really need to be had. Yeah. And, and flushed out while yes. you're there. Yeah. And I will tell you firsthand as being sitting right by the side of very, very dear patients of mine, what you, this is what my little Wenzelism like <laughs> contribution to this from a psychology and managing of the emotional journey. Mm-hmm. Don't be romantic with your ideas out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself the opportunity to change your mind. If you get more data, then yeah. you now better understand that a certain route makes more sense. And it, it's a it's a whirlwind of emotion. It's oh, a yeah. whirlwind of data that you're trying to process. And it, it's very easy to get stuck on a side effect or a treatment or a non-treatment or what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. Right. Um, but that don't be afraid to pivot. Yeah. Um, as you're, as you're navigating this, um, because it is a lot to consider. It's, it's interesting you, you say that. Cause I had a conversation with a breast surgeon about a month ago and, um, we were in like the surgeon's lounge and we were just kind of talking about how you present bad mm-hmm. news to mm-hmm. a patient. And what she does is she, when a patient comes to her and she's done a biopsy she knows that she's going to be telling mm-hmm. this patient that she has cancer. She says it's a very difficult conversation because the patient comes in and they hear cancer and that's it. And then that's it. And then they're in there for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then they're back to the same step that they began with because mm-hmm. they didn't hear anything. Right. So what, what I do and this, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but what I do is if I get your biopsy back for good or bad, I'm calling you and if that's a problem, then I'm sorry. But the reason I'm calling you is so that that way, before you see me in a week or a day or however long the shock it's going to be, over. you got over the shock. Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, this is what you have. It's very treatable. It's very we curable. So we'll talk about them. We will get you through this. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, if you want to go to the American Cancer Society 
and read about this. Yeah. Get some information. Write down some initial five processing. Right. So that when you come That's in, smart. we're having an educated discussion. That's smart. And it gets to your point about, okay, the, these are the things that you're not getting bogged down in. You're not getting bogged down in the idea of now I have cancer. And uh, am I going to make it to see my kid's graduation? Mm -hmm. Now you're thinking about, okay, how do I want to fight this? What do we want to do to make this better? It's a much more meaningful meeting between you and the patient at that point. Yeah. Because you don't have to navigate the the shock and awe. Right. Um, And and we're making a plan for… You know, next week, six weeks, three months, three years down the road. So you kind of know where this trajectory, what's going to hopefully go and may go. And Mm -hmm. and if not, then these are the kind of kind of roads we can take. But I think that's a much more satisfying appointment and a discussion with anyone um, who's been told you've got cancer. Yeah. No, and I, I, I have had way too many of those in a very intimate environment in my practice. And those mm-hmm. are always really tough to navigate. And it, the first go around is really just wrapping your head around the fact that it's not good news. Right. And then there really does need to be a layer where you, you're just processing that it's not great news. Right. And then once that gets to some, reality, mm-hmm. then I think people psychologically, I think it's a human thing. I don't, mm-hmm. I, there might be some people who are just ninjas at compartmentalizing and I'm yeah. like, Oh, okay. Well that, what is that? Like most, that's not most people, right? Most people are going to need a minute. Yeah. You're going to go through those stages of grief and yeah. denial and everything. Okay. What does it. this mean? Yeah. Then what do we do? Cause that's, that's where the conversation really gets legs. Mm hmm. Um, and, and, and cause this is not something that is like, oh, well, this is super easy. If this, then that like this, this is a dialogue. This is a breathing, uh, dynamic conversation yeah. that, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to tell you about that. I'm, oh, well that may or may not change what we do. And yeah. being able to have that relationship, I think with certainly the urologist is, I just don't know how you do it without that. Um, my, one of my favorite things that ever happened, and he's, he's still a patient of mine is I had a guy who we diagnosed with cancer and he was really worked up about this. He's this guy straight out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. He has a Blackhawks jersey on every time I see him. And this was probably about eight years ago. And he's like, doc, I just want to be able to see the Cubs win the world series. Oh my gosh. And so we got him through it. He's done great with his cancer. And I still see him cause we have these follow-ups. And of course the Cubs won a few mm-hmm. years ago and he came and saw me after that. And he's like, now it's going to come calling, man. He's like, it's going to come back no, and you get just need me new now. Goals now. Yeah. So I told you him. You just need a new goal. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to figure out the next step. They got to repeat. That's right. <laughs> Hang out for the repeat. That's right. Yeah. That's so good. Well, listen, this has been, um, incredible. I, I, I know that my listeners will find value in this. Um, and that's really who this is for. Um, if somebody's listening to this and they want to know more about you or see what you're up to, h- how would somebody yeah. um, connect with you? So I have a personal website, the robotic urologist.com and that links not only to me, but then it can link to my practice group, mm-hmm. which is the associated urologist of Nashville. And so there's updates that go up on there. There's articles that we put up, there's photos and stuff as we're kind of talking about, not just 
you know, men's health and cancer, mm-hmm. but also some of these other things like the IPSS score and stuff that we mm-hmm. talked about. So mm-hmm. if you're really interested in trying to figure out what's going on, there's some things that are out there for free that you can just take a look at. That's great. We will put that URL in our um, show notes. W- one last question. We do have listenership kind of across the country. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you it, does destinational medicine consultations, is that something that is, you're able to mm-hmm. work with? Yeah, we have patients that fly in. So that's not a problem at all. That's great. Well, this has been great. Yeah, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Doc. Sure thing. Okay. I want to thank you so much for your attention. Listen, I don't take it for granted. It means the absolute world to me. You can find out more about today's episode at brentwoodmd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, all the related links to this episode and tons of other resources. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you've already subscribed, then it would mean so much to me if you left a review. If you think we'd be a good fit to work together, or you would just simply like to know more about the concierge services that I provide my private clients, email us at membership at brentwoodmd.com. And now for the obligatory disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or the giving of medical advice as no doctor-patient relationship has been formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should seek the advice of their own medical professional providers.